The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, it is Merger Monday. General Electric, the stock is up 9% after agreeing to sell its biopharma business to Donaher. Donaher is actually up 8% for a total consideration of $21.4 billion, providing a major boost for the trouble conglomerates. Turnaround to help us kind of dig into the details of this transaction. Motivations on both sides is Brooke Sutherland. Brooke is a deals and industrial columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. She joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Brooke, is this just part of GE's plan to just trim down and focus on that balance sheet? It really is. I mean, this deal is all about the balance sheet. I mean, I think Larry Culp, the first sentence of his quote in the statement was about, you know, how this would allow the company to reduce leverage. Uh, Twenty, you know, one billion dollars coming in the door in cash and then about 400 million of pensions being transferred with this asset, uh, which is a big deal given GE has a very significant unfunded pension balance. Um, you know, but what I think is interesting about this is sort of the the counterbalance with what John Flannery promised to do when he was running the company. So his plan for the healthcare business was to spin off 80% to shareholders and sell 20% via an IPO. And the reason why he did that and why he did a lot of the things that he did is he was trying to balance the need to pay down debt with, you know, a desire to sort of give something to equity holders, give them a chance to participate in the upside opportunities for some of these GE businesses. And I think what you've seen Larry Culp do time and time again is say, forget all of that. We need all the cash we can get, and we're going to structure these deals in a way that optimizes the amount of cash coming in the door. The incredible irony of that is that the shares uh, are rallying the most since 2009. So shareholders are liking what they see regardless of any longer-term uh, better potential from keeping the business on hand. Right. Well, so I think that um, for the time being, the interests of bondholders and shareholders are aligned because obviously the balance sheet is the biggest overhang on the stock right now. It's the biggest factor driving the stock. And so to be able to mitigate that, and this life sciences deal goes a very long way to doing that, is a huge step forward. But I would point out the shares are rallying, but they're back to about where they were in October. So uh, yes, your interests are aligned at a certain point, but that only lasts for so long. And as you start thinking about what does the GE of the future look like? So they're keeping the uh, you know core healthcare business in the fold right now. They say you know they're going to look at other options for that. They're not going to do the IPO right away. Um, I think part of that is the fact that they need the cash flow from that healthcare business to offset the challenges that they have in the power unit in GE Capital. Healthcare is one of the best cash generating assets that GE has, and especially as you look at the possibility of a recession in 2021, that's going to hit the aviation business. Really Really hard. So I think just given all of those factors, it makes sense to keep healthcare in the fold. But eventually, you know, all signs are pointing to that eventually being separate. And clearly, this is a company with a lot of challenges. And I just, you know, 
as you sort of take a step back and say, where do we go from here? Once you play this card and you bring the cash in the door, that sort of solves your balance sheet issues in the near term, but you still have to figure out, you know, how does this company grow? How do we deal with all of the problems that we have? So for Donaher, uh, the stock is up uh, eight or nine percent today, which is unusual for an acquirer, particularly a cash acquirer. So what's going on here? Did they get a great deal or there are huge synergies? What's driving the upside for Donaher? Right. I mean, this is a great deal for Danaher. I think, you know, this is a business that they know well. They've been increasingly pivoting into life sciences. I think it's, you know, a more attractive multiple than what they've paid for some of their past deals, which have been on the pricier side, obviously, in the healthcare space as they sort of transition away from their industrial past. Um yeah, I mean, I just think this is a really slam dunk deal for Danaher. And what the company is really known for is buying businesses, bringing them in, and then applying the Danaher business system to those businesses and really improving their profitability. I think clearly what we've discovered through this whole GE process is that some of these assets are, are not always managed to their greatest potential. And you have to wonder, you know, some of these life sciences business at a time when you have so many cash calls at the company were they investing to the extent that they needed to uh i think there's just a lot of opportunity for danaher to do more with this business brooke sutherland our ge correspondent joining us here in our 1130 studios brooke sutherland is really a bloomberg opinion columnist uh and she covers industrial companies among many other things here at bloomberg uh, we thank you for being with us really interesting day for general electric Well, today, President Donald Trump raised the prospect that he could sign a new trade deal with his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping, as both sides express optimism that substantial progress is being made toward ending the trade war between the world's two biggest economies. To help us dig into that, uh, we bring on Leland Melvin. Leland is CEO of the China Beige Book International. Oh, I'm sorry, Leland Miller. Uh, he's with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York. So, Leland, thanks for being with us. Um, what is your sense as to what will actually get done between China and the U.S.? Will it be anything material, in your opinion? Now, I think that we were set up from the very beginning to have a very limited deal. It was very clear that the president wanted movement on the trade deficit. He wanted to announce a lot of big imports, maybe some long-term contracts. So it sounded good to, to the farming base. Uh, and, and he wanted to, to push on intellectual property. Uh, so th theft and coercion. Uh, and I think that we'll get, we'll get stuff on that. We'll get a little bit of stuff on market access. In general, this is not something that is a broad deal. It's not what they originally sold it to be. And it's, there's going to be no structural reform whatsoever. Is China in a better negotiating position right now, given the fact that they're allowing leverage to creep back up uh, and potentially juice their economy? You know, I, I think the problem is that people haven't been able to get a, a good uh, reading on the Chinese economy for a few months. The Chinese economy is not, not, not in great shape right now. So I don't think that they've materially improved in the last month or two in terms of just letting the credit flow. Um, now, overall, they want to get this trade stuff out of the way so they can batten down the hatches and really focus on improving their domestic economy. I don't think that they're pushed out of the way so that they can get down to business uh, domestically. So, Lena, why is it so hard to really get some of these big issues on the table and to start knocking them off one by one? Maybe it seems it's not just the Trump administration, but we've seen through history. What is what is what are really the tough things and why is China playing so uh such such hardball because these are not preferences so when we talk about structural reform we're not talking about preferences that the leadership has we're talking about the absolute 
foundation of the way the Chinese economy runs. So when you're talking about favoring state companies, state-owned enterprises, when you're talking about subsidies and, and repressing households in order to boost the state, and you're talking about non-tariff barriers, this is the way that the Chinese economy is able to run. It's a very different than a market economy. It's not a commercial financial system. This is the way the Chinese economy is run, and one of the ways that the Chinese Communist Party is able to maintain control of the country. So the idea that they're simply going to say, okay, well, you know, it's it's about time that we got with the program and became a market economy, and we we, we we ran our economy the same way the U.S. That was never going to happen, and it certainly was never going to happen after a 90-day negotiation where very little pain was threatened. All right. Just taking a step back, you nailed it when you just said back last year, there's going to be a deal. President Trump wants a deal. It's going to be a narrowly crafted deal. This is not going to deal with the thornier issues. Both sides can declare some sort of victory and move on. Nothing really will change. Lighthizer, however, wants something different. And he and uh, in, in President Trump are increasingly, or at least appear to be, appear, uh, increasingly pitted against each other. How will that ta- tension factor into these negotiations? Well, I think that first and foremost, Robert Lighthizer is a is a good soldier. So he is he knows he's not the president. He's doing what the president wants. At the same time, he entered this administration to get something done. And that was he saw an inequity in the relationship and he wanted to be one of the guys who helped make it right. And I think this is very frustrating for him and quite frankly a lot of people in this administration who who thought that they were on the verge of summoning up leverage that no one had been willing to do for many many years ever truly, uh, and, and to push something on China that would really make a difference to, to, to change the, 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 basically the ground floor of the relationship. And then as we get to a deadline, everyone sort of loses their nerves. So this has to be extremely frustrating for Lighthizer. So I'm just trying to understand this, because if, if they were thinking that there was more on the table than, say, uh, something having to do with the trade deficit, then was President Trump ever trying to do that? I mean, is, is that, could that be back on the table? I don't think it was ever on the table. When we when we spoke to, to administration officials of this, it was very clear that there were there were priorities. Uh, most of them were political priorities involving the trade deficit. Intellectual property, to their credit, was a major issue that they wanted to to make progress on. Theft and coercion of intellectual property is a major issue, and I think that we will see uh, some some major announcements on that. Now, the key, of course, is not whether the Chinese make announcements on on IP theft and then create a regime to protect uh, intellectual property. It's whether they'll actually enforce it. And this is something that Lighthizer himself has been saying over and over. If the Chinese can simply flip a switch the next time that there's a problem in the relationship and all this beautiful enforcement, all this, these IP laws and IP courts and everything else that they've promised to do just suddenly go away, then what has this entire process been? And that's why there's been so much of a push by some people for structural reform because the opposite of structural reform is transitory, transitory reform, which will just go away as soon as the relationship changes. And I think that's what people are fearing we're walking into. So is that fear crystallized in the sense that maybe we just have one bite at the apple here and we've, if we lose this opportunity now or if we do pass on the big structural issues that we may not be able to revisit them for some period of time? Yeah, I mean, that's the fear. So, so we don't know how many bites the apple will get, but we do know that an enormous amount of leverage was summoned in order to push the Chinese into this negotiation. And is that, does that leverage the tariffs per se? It was the tariffs, it was threatening some other things, but yeah, principally the tariffs. And you can agree or not, but 
but this summon leverage, it's very hard to summon. And the Chinese aren't going to be as open to doing this a year from now or three years from now. So maybe this is the last bite of the apple. But either way, every year that goes by, the Chinese get incrementally stronger and more able to, to push back on this and are now more knowledgeable, more rec- in recognition of the fact that this unequal trade relationship has caused the U.S. to have more leverage. And so they're doing things to alter the, the relationship as well. Meanwhile, a lot of people are wagering that China will uh, succeed at keeping up its economy and keeping its growth rate high by engaging in more stimulus, which it's already begun to do. Do you think that the market is mistaken with their optimism around that? Uh, in terms of medium and long term, I think they are. And, and, and there's, there's, you know, we, we have flash data coming out this week. So we're going to have a new reading of the economy later this week. And the first one in 2019 that actually shows what's happening. But I think if you look at the horizon line, then there's something that people aren't paying enough attention to. And that is the Chinese economy is going to slow no matter what happens. Best case scenario, worst case scenario, the Chinese economy, because of slowing returns on investment and debt accumulation, is going to slow quite dramatically over the coming years. So the Chinese have to build this into their narrative. Why is their economy slowing down? Well, they just have a beautiful excuse now. Donald Trump launched a trade war. The world is being mean. So President Xi and, 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 and the rulers in Beijing are able to look at this and say, you know, we have an excuse now for why our economy is slowing. They might run with this. So you may be looking at a different paradigm than you've looked in different years. They may be willing to accept slower growth because they can blame it on somebody else at this point. That's fascinating. From a political standpoint, China may allow its economy to slow even more, especially if President Trump continues to ramp up pressure. Leland Miller, thank you so much for being with us. Leland Miller is Chief Executive Officer of China Beige Book International in New York, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Uh, right now, we are looking at oil prices that are sharply lower. So they're taking a cue from President Trump's Twitter feed with the uh, biggest decline in WTI that is traded on the NYMAX in a number of months. Joining us now to talk about this uh, is John Kilduff. Actually, I'll give you the exact date since uh, December. Uh, joining us now, John Kilduff, founding partner at Again Capital. John, I was actually really surprised that the oil markets responded so much to President Trump's tweet. Because honestly, hasn't OPEC lost a lot of the control over this? Well, if everybody heard the way you read the tweet just now, it would be, we, I think we'd be off more, Lisa, just, just for the record. Um, <laughs> Thank you, I, I think. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the emotion you brought to that, the emotion you brought to that was terrific. Um, no, the, uh, 
I mean, the, the, the initial reaction to it was actually fairly muted, but it really started to pick up steam. Um, I think when, when you sort of thought it through from a market perspective in that, A, the Saudis have a track record of placating President Trump and responding to him when he makes these demands. That's what got the market into trouble at the latter part of last year to the downside in a big way. And two, um, there had been some speculation about what the uh, state of affairs will be surrounding the waivers that had been granted uh, to various countries and companies to continue to buy Iranian oil, uh, you know, late last year as well, which is also part of that, that sell off, that dynamic. Um, you have to believe that those waivers are probably going to get renewed to a great degree, uh, given President Trump's concern about where oil prices are uh, presently. So um, as you sort of got over the, the shock value of him weighing in yet again on the oil market, um, it, uh, it was you know, a, a pretty bearish uh, tweet. So, so John, you know, prior to today's market action, the you know oil had been grinding higher every day, up about thirty percent off its December low on West, Te uh, West Texas Intermediate crude. What was the the bull case for driving oil higher? Well, a couple of things. I mean, there's obviously a lot of uh, uh, irritants in the market. I mean, not the Venice, the tragic Venezuelan situation. We had elections over the weekend in Nigeria that uh, could have could have devolved again and knocked some of their oil. Uh, offline, we, that still may happen, and we're watching it. Libya, uh, too, but really the uh, the Saudis have really put their shoulder to the wheel in terms of cutting their output, cutting their exports, uh, and they also had a problem with uh, one of their large offshore fields. A power cable got cut somehow, and um, that had knocked a good deal of their production offline. So a lot of things were adding up here to tighten the market. Um, you know, particularly as it relates to the type of crude oil that uh, that Venezuela has pretty much ceased putting on the market. Um, so, and and really the um, the renewed uh, prospects for uh, for for the for the U.S. China trade talks that have you know got the stock market to where it is also fed into the uh, to the oil story. So right now I'm looking at WTI at fifty five dollars and thirty six cents a barrel. I'm looking at Brent uh, sixty four dollars and ninety cents. What's the sweet spot for uh, U.S. shale producers to continue to produce, be profitable, uh, and yet still have demand where it is right now? Closer to closer to sixty dollars a barrel plus is is, is really ideal. With WTI uh, or with Brent? Oh, yes, I'm sorry for WTI. Okay. Uh, that would be a Brent price of about seventy dollars. I mean, tr President Trump certainly did the U.S. oil industry no favors this morning uh, with that tweet, and it's, you know it's kind of curious because I know he wants us to be energy dominant. Um, this doesn't help that. Uh, and you know, we've spoken before. You know, these oil prices, WTI oil prices, fifty and below. You can talk about how they've worked. The, the shale players have worked break evens down to to thirty five, forty dollars a barrel, but the all in costs. Uh, below 50 bucks for WTI, they are feeling it. And we did see um, rig counts come down. We did see drilling activity come down in response to the sell-off again late last year that culminated in the, uh, in, in the December low. Um, and they're only starting to come back now. So uh, we're starting to get into the red zone already for them uh, with prices even here at $55. So, John, whenever we have you on, we're talking global oil. I can't help but uh, always raise the question of Russia. What is Russia doing in the marketplace in terms of supply right now? How disruptive are they vis-a-vis -vis OPEC? Well, you know, they, they, the, the leadership talks a good game. You know, President Putin, uh, their energy minister, Novak, you know, they, they, they'll sit there, they'll sign everything and, 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 you know, hug the Saudis and say, we're with you. And then the numbers just don't pan out in terms of production because their companies 
don't want to be part of these production cutbacks. You know, they, they see shale as a threat. They, they want market share. They actually operate in a much more commercially uh, appropriate uh, way than sort of cartelish. So they don't particularly care for these, these antics and see themselves being set up ultimately for failure as the U.S. production now goes over 12 million barrels a day. They're seeing this. So um, they're not actually being as, that helpful to the Saudis, and the Saudis have remarked about this. So I'm not sure how much longer the little coalition they've strung together holds and that's going to be another negative for prices, I think, ultimately. John, this, the tweet from President Trump raises a question. What price of oil does he want? Because we're still way below where we saw it uh, at its peak back in 2014. What's he looking for? If I had to guess, he wants to see WTI below $50 a barrel, down around 45 which would translate into about $2 a gallon or so at the pump, at the gasoline pump. I think he's very uh, uh, sensitive to that. If he could deliver, I, I think, on that, um, and, and he's right to because when uh, prices get north, much north of, say, 250 or start to approach that $3 a gallon level, you start to see hits to consumer confidence uh, and other um, you know, measures of, of just confidence in the economy generally. Uh, so we're obviously on re-election watch in a big way, and I think he wants to see a forehandle. So, John, if you take a look at the global supply demand out there, is there a model out there that gets you to that forehandle? Yeah, pretty easy, pretty easily, actually. I was very distrustful uh, of this of this rally. Now, I didn't see President Trump's tweet coming into to be a factor, but um, you know, as we start to get into uh, the sp- the latter part of the winter, early spring. There's a lot of refinery maintenance that gets done. That's going to cause a big dent in crude oil demand, at least for a while. Um, the situation in China, their economy is really uh, hurting, and I guess partly from the, the trade war, but I think it goes beyond that. Um, certain measures of, of their economic uh, manufacturing activity, factory orders, everything that goes to their sort of energy intensity usage uh, is has turned over, has rolled over. And that's a big part of the demand equation here. And I think that coupled with uh, just a, a lack of will by everyone else except Saudi Arabia to curtail supplies uh, makes the argument for lower prices. You know, it's so interesting, Paul, because as John talks, mid-40s uh, for oil, I wonder how many shale producers go out of business with that. Yeah, exactly. Along your line of thinking, exactly right. I think they like it at that 55 to 60 plus kind of range. Uh, John Kilduff, founding partner, Again Capital, uh, on all things energy, joining us on the phone from New York. The Oracle of Omaha is looking for an elephant-sized acquisition. One of the takeaways from this weekend's investor meeting with, of course, Berkshire Hathaway's founder. We're talking, of course, Warren Buffett. Kat Chaglinski joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. She covers finance for us at Bloomberg News. So, uh, Kat, what about this big acquisition? I feel like Warren Buffett has been holding this out for a long time, given his $112 billion cash pile. Is this year different? No. And he was quite explicit about that. I mean, (laughs) he said in his letter, he was like, you know, 2018, they didn't find a big deal. And that might not change in 2019. It might be another year in which he just actually spends a lot more money on common stocks. So what about, was there anything in the letter? I know you've, you've read these letters before. Was there anything in this letter that was new or different or interesting? Or what were some of your key takeaways? Well, one key takeaway is kind of a wonky Berkshire thing, but they removed the use of book value as kind of a measuring of intrinsic value. And it's a, it's a really wonky type of kind of Berkshire we like nugget. Wonkier, it's okay but, occasionally. But it, 
But it's good because it really shows how Buffett has taken this company from, you know, an investment that was normally just mostly full of common stocks to a company that now spans like BNSF, Dairy Queen, Geico. It's kind of all over the range. And that's crucially important. Well, is this why they posted a $25 billion loss? That was because of the stock investments. That's kind of the, still still an important, as he mentioned in the Berkshire Forest, it's still an important grove for them. Um, they post, posted that partially because of Kraft Heinz and partially because of this accounting change that requires them to post unrealized gains and losses in their um, net income. He says to look through that a bit because he's a long-term investor. He'll stick with the stocks for a while. So even if at a quarter they're down a lot, he's probably going to hold on until it's a little more positive. Well, how about Apple stock? That's the the largest shareholding uh, holding of Berkshire Hathaway. That uh, Apple stock is up ten percent this year. Any sense of what he wants to do with that position? He's still favorable with it. So they trimmed it a bit in the fourth quarter, but he clarified today that was not him. That was an investing deputy. He didn't name which one. And I think that's really important to give a sort of sign of faith that that he still likes the company. He said he would buy more of it, but um, frankly, it's a little too expensive right now. I thought it was interesting some of his comments this morning on CNBC about Kraft Heinz. Uh, basically saying that he's not selling, yay, considering he's a very big investor, but basically that that Kraft was overvalued at at purchase uh, and that he wouldn't buy any shares if he didn't have such a big holding. Not great. Shares of Kraft Heinz down nine-tenths of one percent. Yeah, I don't think it was a positive take on the company. I mean, he did... To be fair, he did say, you know, there's still value in the brands. They, you know, of course he said that. Why wouldn't he? He (laughs) owns so much of it. He does have to be positive to an extent, of course. Um, But I do think it took a bit of a negative turn. I mean, the fact that he won't consider buying the rest of the the company, even though their stock hit a record low Friday, I think sort of says a sign that like, it's really hard to bet on these consumer companies when the consumer preferences are changing just as fast as they are these days. So, Kat, um, I think Warren Buffett's 88. Is that right? Correct. Okay. So, in the letter, was there anything about successor potentially? So, if you're looking for explicit sort of directives, no. He did praise Greg Abel and he praised Ajit Jain. But the important parts, I think, that he touched on with his succession are he spent a chunk of the letter describing Berkshire as a forest and the different groves that make up it. And he said... You know, Berkshire is better together rather than some of its parts. And I think that was actually really crucial because he's, you know, there's probably going to be calls to break up Berkshire once he leaves because it's kind of a weird mix of businesses. But in it, in essence, him saying don't break it up makes it easier for his successor to say, hey, look, Buffett himself said it's better together. Kat, is the Oracle of Omaha kind of out of new ideas and tired out. The reason why I ask is because I was looking at uh, the list of high points from everything that was said yesterday or, or just over the weekend in general on Saturday. Um, it was the same stuff said last year. The cash position is about the same relative to book. What's your take? I think he's struggling. And uh, and he sort of clarifies this too, right? So uh, one of the most, more interesting things he said this morning was uh, he got into Oracle in the third quarter, and then he completely got out of it in the fourth quarter. And that's just very odd for Berkshire to do. They like to hold it for a long time. For So for him to get out and get get in and get out is, um, is strange. And he, he clarified it was because he thought he knew more about the business, but he realized he didn't actually understand it. And I think that's sort of the problem these days is that you know, he's really trying to sort of adjust to the, whether it's the new consumer environment or the new investing landscape, but it's changing a lot. And I think that's why he's relying on like his investing deputies, Todd Combs and Ted Weschler as well. And I think why he's, you know, Ajit Jain and Greg Abel are running some of the operating businesses. I think it's to sort of 
build up sort of this breadth of people who can also look at different ideas. Um, he mentioned Todd Combs and Ted Weschler um, help him with acquisitions, which I think is also incredibly important, you know, in this kind of dearth of uh, M&A. So if, if new ideas, exciting ideas, you know, that, that hit his screen are fewer and farther between, is pressure building from shareholders to redeploy that $100 billion of cash and start buying back stock? I think it's... It's nuanced because, uh, you know, you so he bought back one point three billion dollars in shares last year. And that was a change. I mean, he normally sort of uh, doesn't favor capital return. He'd rather buy businesses. He'd rather spend it on common stocks. Um, so I think there is sort of a change. And I, I do agree that I think a lot of investors would love to see him buy back more stock. But then again, you know, as many investors point out to me, Buffett made his money and made his name in, mar- in times of market turmoil. So some people are saying, hey, Buddy, $112 billion, not too bad. Sit on it. Wait on it. When the market turns, then swoop in. Interesting. So the uh, company repeat, uh, reported earnings this uh, weekend. Very disappointing numbers. The annual letter came out. Really not a lot of new stuff in the annual letter. And the shares are up. And the shares are up. That's where I was <laughs> That's going. That's the kicker. So, so it's, uh, I, think, uh, you know, I think the market is still according Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway the benefit of the doubt here. It seems like, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, returning cash or looking for the next big whale or just adding or trading around existing positions. I think the market seems to be uh, giving Warren Buffett uh, a pass here. So, in fairness, given his track record of returns, I kind of understand it. And operating earnings were up, to be fair. Exactly right. Uh, (laughs) Thanks so much. Kat Kajelinski, U.S. finance reporter from Bloomberg News. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.